Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as usual by professional Kenny G lookalike Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? That's pretty mean. Pretty mean introduction. <laughs> I'm doing very well because it seems that once again the weather manipulation department knows we have a podcast on, and they made it a beautiful day in Beijing. They so did. I mean, they are ex- really a- aware of the extent of our power and our influence. That's right. So, anyway, so I'm going to jump right in and, and start talking rather than chatting as we usually do. So today we're talking about a topic that's worth revisiting frequently: the relationship between the U.S. and China, between the reigning and rising powers of the day. Sino-American relationship is, I think, few would dispute、uh, the most important bilateral relationship of our time, and probably will be for decades to come. It's also one of the most complex and fraught relations, one with many dimensions to it. So, joining us to talk about this today is Professor Wendy Dobson. Professor Dobson is former Associate Deputy Minister of Canada and is now a professor at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Her latest book, which was just released on November first, is called "Partners and Rivals: The Uneasy Future of China's Relations with the U.S." Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Great.、Uh, so I'm gonna. It's it's a slim volume. It's a what 136 pages. It's a very good read, and it's an enormous topic to take on. I mean, I'm sure you had to do quite a bit of editorial selection in deciding what topics to、uh, squeeze into such a slim volume. True. True. So it depends on who you think your audience is. Right, and making those so, decisions. Then the intended audience of this was. This is very much aimed at Canadians. Okay. Okay. And、uh, we'll we'll talk about that Canadian perspective in in, in just a bit here. You introduce your book、uh, by talking about the Sunnyland Summit, which is interesting because I was、uh, at a a conference held by the Committee of One Hundred. Group of influential Chinese Americans, and、uh, the lunchtime keynote speaker was Mickey Cantor, who was、uh, the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative,、uh, from 1993 to 1996 during the, the Clinton administration, and he was really crucial in the negotiations that brought China into the WTO, working very clo- closely with Wei on that.、Uh, And one of the things that he talked about, he, he actually opened like you did your book、uh, with the Sunnylands Summit, and talked about what an important、uh, summit that was, and and. Sort of like you did. He he said it wasn't the substance that was discussed, but rather、uh, the time that they spent together—eight hours、uh, of of more or less uninterrupted one-on-one. How important,、uh, by your lights, is、uh, personal relationship building、uh, to the overall relationship between the two heads of state? Well, coming back to、uh, what you, one point that you made earlier, we've got here a rising power. In at least European history, rising powers always have, or frequently have, challenged the status quo and disrupted the status quo. And so, in this relationship, because the two economies and all the rest of us are now so deeply interdependent economically, trust between the heads of state really matters.、Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is what the California. Uh, informal meeting was all about. I'm not sure they spent eight hours one on one, but certainly there was a lot of informal time, and、uh, it's absolutely essential、uh, to be able to look the other guy in the eye or the other gal in the eye and take the measure at mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. at a an intuitive level. And of course, up till then, the two of them had only met. Uh, across conference tables, and、uh, so this investment 
uh, I think, was uh, one that is going to help prevent in an atmosphere of mutual mistrust and suspicion, uh, help to prevent the kinds of miscalculations that could lead to accidents and to the conflict that uh, some predict and most of us are very determined they should avoid. Very good. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. Um, at Sunny Labs, also, both heads of state devoted a whole lot of time, again, just as you did in your book, to uh, laying out domestic challenges that they face. Uh, you, you, like I said, take the same approach. I thought it was interesting that you should devote most of the whole first chapter of your book to one particular challenge uh, the, to the, or the set of demographic challenges that's brought on by uh, China's one-child policy now, you know, more than three decades of it. So what is the problem of, of China going gray before it's getting rich, and, and how does that actually relate to the bilateral relationship? It's not central to the bilateral relationship. Mm -hmm. In fact, you, one could be f forgiven for saying, why make that link? It has to do with the impact of the demographic structure, the aging population, on China's labor force. Mm -hmm. And it, so it's one dimension of a complex set of bilateral challenges that China faces. The U.S. faces very different challenges, but nevertheless, really complex and difficult ones. Canadians, for whom I wrote the book, are see them every day on the hourly news. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't write about those. Uh, rather, it was to get help people to get their heads around how important the bilateral issues are uh, on both sides and in detail on the Chinese side, and why that leads both sides to say, you know, we really need international stability because we need to focus our political capital and our efforts on the reforms that are needed at home. And in terms of the demographic structure, China has come a long way just mobilizing rural labor. Mm -hmm. That's beginning to decline. I think that, and that, will, that tailwind without any to, question, yeah. gradually evaporate in the future. And so that means China has to raise its productivity. And that means changing the game here. And that's a very complex set of issues. Absolutely. I mean, so you, this is the link to uh, of, between this de dangerous demographic trend to the notorious middle-income trap right. uh, that, that, that you talk about, where when you know, per capita GDP hits sort of uh, equalized purchasing power parity of about 10,000 bucks, right. uh, suddenly you see, a, 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 historically you've seen in a lot of East Asian countries a, a real slowdown. We've seen it around the, the world. Around the world, actually. not just yeah. in East Asia. Brazil yeah. is one, one, one. Brazil is an example. South Africa is also an example. Okay. Where you see in graphs per, per capita income rising, and then it levels off. Mm -hmm. Uh, for years, decades. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in contrast, uh, an economy like Korea, so right next door, is a great example of motoring from a basket case, everybody in poverty at the end of the war, to a member of the rich uh, country yeah, club OECD by country. 2000. So what did they do? So what did they do? Yeah. <laughs> um, so in China, it, again, it comes back to the fact that uh, up till now, They've come a long way on a mobilization strategy. Just mm -hmm. pull labor out of uh, agriculture, put it into the modern sector that's created by mobilizing uh, capital. 
those well, in both cases are beginning to run into what we call diminishing returns. You don't get the same bang, bang for the, for the buck. The buck. Right, exactly. And so then productivity growth and ingenuity and innovation become have to replace it. They have to be the new drivers, right? At this point, I think as the representative non-American and fellow Commonwealth <laughs> person from South Africa, <laughs> and quite invested in Australia in a way because I, I go there a lot and I, I work there, I'm curious to ask as a Canadian, what's special about your take as a Canadian on the US-China bilateral relationship? And maybe even more importantly, um, uh, Canada, like Australia, New Zealand, like many other big countries, right now is faced with a, a very difficult set of questions in terms of balancing two very important relationships. You have to maintain a good relationship with China and the United States. And those don't always, uh, it's not easy to reconcile those two relationships. Um, you know, what's the Canadian take on it? And, and, and how do you think other countries should balance their relations with China and the United States? Mm. Well, of course, Canada is deeply integrated with the United States, being right next door. And we've got a history that's very Atlantic in its orientation, as well as uh, uh, North American. And the fact that we escaped the uh, uh, global financial crisis in 2008 has contributed to a certain amount of complacency. Hubris, even. Uh, well, smugness. Okay. I, I'm not... I, we're too small to be hubristic. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so one of the reasons... You're too modest to be hubristic. <laughs> one of the reasons I wrote the book was to say, hey, Canada, this is one of our central interests to see the neighbor with which we are deeply economically integrated get along with the rising power. And hey, Canadians, the Chinese may be different, but they're not going away. And, you know, it's strange that with the number of Chinese in migrating immigrant population in Canada, mm -hmm. it's surprising that I have to say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would think that that wouldn't be the case. I would think that uh, from the Canadian perspective, that would be patently obvious. Mm. That's not the well, case? Well, you know, it isn't. Even among your MBA students? Well, no, I wouldn't say it. It's probably more obvious among my MBA students, but I'm thinking more about the general public. Mm -hmm. A number of Chinese immigrants and interests in Canada are Taiwanese. I see. And that's, that goes back uh, a long way. And they've been very successful in cultivating the politicians in the party that is in power right now. And so we have a party that's now had power, more or less, so we had a minority government for a few years. But for six and a half, seven years, this government actually started its term saying, China, they don't observe human rights. We believe in human rights. Right. And there was a political coolness in the relationship for I a number of years until the current prime minister finally went to China and started to get it. But he has a way of following public opinion rather than leading public mm -hmm. opinion. And that's one of the really interesting differences between Canada and Australia, is that a generation ago, the Australian prime minister commissioned a white paper on Australia and Asia. I think at that time it was Northeast Asia. And... It came up with a number of recommendations, which at the level of the prime minister were followed through. 
and every prime minister in Australia since has frequently been to China, sometimes even fluent in Mandarin. Kevin Rudd. And uh, now you have a second or third, I've forgotten how many, but Australia and the Asian Century, another white paper with very specific, a strategy for Australia and how it manages its relationships, uh, not only with uh, Asia and with China, but with the U.S. as well. And in Canada, we take the U.S. relationship for granted, except when they don't allow us to build pipelines to ship mm-hmm. our oil to <laughs> the uh, Mexican, the Gulf of Mexico. I guess, in political terms, Chinese are not active politically in our process, except as I described the Taiwanese group. And we don't have a strategy. So what we're doing is ad hoc. And one of the interesting things for a Canadian, being in Beijing, I met with our ambassador, and he's been doing a lot of spade work, pulling together a history of the kinds of collaboration that have gone on people to people between Canadians and the Chinese. And here's a government in Ottawa that is criticizing, or has, they're much more muted now and understand how you conduct these issues. But there is nevertheless a concern about human rights. And they, you know, I don't think a single Canadian is aware of the amount of aid funds from Canada that have gone into helping to train the Chinese judiciary. Hmm. I certainly wasn't aware no, of it. No, yeah. it's been a long-standing program that's been very successful. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows about it, not even Canadians. Right. So you're saying, I mean, ca- Canada has been doing a lot of good things, but it's not done it's in all a strategic ad hoc. way. It's exactly. ad hoc. It's just exactly. it happens how it happens there. So I have great mm. ad- admiration for the Australian approach and the strategic approach that you take and the fact that even though you're in many ways as distant geographically from China as we are, measured from our west coast. Your prime ministers are in China all the time. Well, they are. But, uh, you know, I'm actually South African born and very soon will have lived more time in China than South Africa. But I do a lot in Australia. And I think that there are some Australians that would be very happy to hear you say that. And there are also quite a lot of Australians who would uh, think that, uh, you know, they haven't done such a good job despite all the white papers. I mean, I think in Canberra... That, that Australia ma- should do more. That, that it's also been, if not ad hoc, um, ah. uh, you know, it's zigzagged all over the place. You know, should uh, Australia have a very close defense relationship with the United States? And then how, how does that affect their relationship with China? Should oh, they that's... let Huawei in or not? Mm-hmm. You know, they're supposed to be open for business. But uh, sometimes when Chinese companies want to buy a lot of land, it, it doesn't happen. And th- the other thing, maybe I could turn this into a question again that I find interesting about Australia. And I- I'd be curious if, if the same effect is in Canada, is that it seems to splinter up the usual political alignments in the sense that you have sort of right-wing business people in Australia who are very, very pro-China, who in another generation may have been yellow peril xenophobes. And then you have people who were traditionally uh, liberal in the American sense, but not in the Australian sense, um, you know, uh, uh, more progressive people who traditionally may have been more left-wing and more inclined to be sympathetic towards China, but are more hostile to it because of human rights or other issues. Do you think Canada has the same effect? Is it it making strange bedfellows in Canadian politics as well? Yes. I guess I would say that First of all, it's taken a long time to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And so it's our big businesses, 
who have actually built successful businesses in China after 30 years of hard work. And there's an interest in more, uh, since we're dominated by small and medium-sized enterprises, an interest in, so how do you turn that into business with the Chinese? And we're also sort of bifurcated in that the western part of the country is all natural resources and Mm -hmm. mining and energy, and um, the east is more manufacturing. So I would say that the relationships are different, and it, well, the relationship of the business community was stronger the further west you went. I see. The irony today is that with Sinook Limited acquisition of Nexen, Mm -hmm. uh, a Canadian oil company, the biggest outward investment that a Chinese uh, enterprise has yet made. There is a remarkable amount of suspicion that has appeared in Western Canada, particularly in what we call the oil patch. In Alberta, right? Yeah, towards um, state-owned enterprise hmm. and all sorts of you know suspicions and complaints that we don't need a foreign government running our companies and owning part of our natural resources. Right. I mean, I, I'm not terribly surprised. Alberta is actually, I mean, not only the highest concentration of fossil resources, but also probably Canada's highest concentration of rednecks. So, I mean, you not, said it. Yeah. I didn't. I, I said it. That's why I didn't <laughs> want to put those words in your mouth. Uh, Jeremy, what, you had brought up two things in connection with Australia. One of them was Huawei. The other one was the military alliance with the United States, um, ANZUS, and and the commitment by the Obama administration a few years ago as really sort of the opening move in what's now called the rebalancing, but was initially sort of misbranded as the pivot uh, stationing of Marines in northern Australia. Which brings me to to this this question, the rebalancing, the the valuehood pivot. And again, I'm going to bring up Mickey Cantor because this is something that he said, and I'm sure he's somebody that you've had some truck with uh, in in your life. I think you probably overlapped in office. A little bit. Right, right. He thought that it was a mistake in giving it a name at all, whether it's pivot or rebalancing. Um, and highlighting it as any kind of uh, a deliberate policy. After all, I mean, America was already a Pacific power. America, I mean, it had no no need to announce this. That it, it only sort of created hostility. It, it it created suspicion on the part of the Chinese that Americans who care so much about perception seem seem to have mismanaged the whole perception angle of this so badly. Not long ago, Jeff Bader, uh, who was really instrumental in formulating American policy toward China was out here for something that the Carnegie Institute uh, put on. And he, he basically, you know, was arguing against a consensus of, among all the Chinese participants that what the pivot essentially uh, distilled down to was containment. Bader said, no, no, you would know it if we were trying to contain you. What we, I mean, this is, this is not anything like, you know, the, the C word. How is this being viewed from Canada, the whole pivot? And how do you treat the rebalancing not the economic rebalancing, but this you know Pacific rebalancing uh, that the Obama administration announced uh, in your book. Hmm. I agree that uh, the pivot and the energy, it was far too energetic. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And the most unfortunate thing, so the term was unfortunate, uh, the energy that went into it was unfortunate, and the fact that it was security-focused was right. it was extremely unfortunate and really basic strategic mistake because the U.S. had already made an economic initiative when it applied to join the P4, That's right. which 
then turned into the TPP. Mm-hmm. And now, here in Beijing, the uh, Chinese government brings in American academics to inform them on the TPP because they're looking at it and saying, hey, maybe getting involved in the TPP would help us deal with some of the issues. I think that's the that, best possible, uh, I mean, the best thing that could possibly happen right now. Right. Is, uh, deal with the issues the way we use WTO accession. Yes. We can say to the SOEs that need to be rationalized and, and uh, become more competitive, hey, the foreigners made us do it. <laughs> so anyway, the point that I was uh, making was that the Americans made the mistake of leaving economics out of it, even though they were already... Economically committed. Right? Yeah, to a already. new economic strategy in in the region. I guess China also made a mistake and behaved like an aggrieved small power when it did have the option of behaving like a mature, great power Mm -hmm. and sitting down, talking about it. That didn't happen. And it gave an opening for those in China who do believe in humiliation narratives as alive and well, uh, that, hey, the Americans are trying to do it again. The great power approach would be are you kidding? A great power cannot be contained. Right. Or it could even be, I mean, my, were I to have handled it, I would have said, great, welcome to the neighborhood. Um, you, you, well, welcome back to the neighborhood. And, and I would have chosen to play up the economic dimensions of it. Exactly. And, and the, the positive. The other thing that you mentioned, Jeremy, was Huawei, which reminds me of this, this topic of cyber espionage, and especially industrial espionage, and how that was so on the front burner of the American agenda, uh, <laughs> briefly, <laughs> very, very briefly, uh, in the months just prior to, well, just prior to Snowden's <laughs> yeah. revelations. Um, how is that being viewed, again, from where, where you sit in north of the border? Yeah, so we too... So our prime minister has sort of followed on Huawei. We actually gave Huawei, one of our provincial governments, to attract Huawei to set up an R&D center. Mm-hmm. Actually gave them an incentive, a financial incentive to do, to do so. But w- at the federal level, our prime minister has backed off and said that getting involved in any kind of national security-related network equipment supply is off the table. So we have a national security uh, review mechanism, Mm -hmm. but it's far less transparent than CFIUS, if you can believe it. (laughs) And we don't have a Pentagon and a CIA and the network that they, of course, have with the corporate, the relevant corporates like IBM Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. And so we don't have the same level of concern that if Huawei is in the country, no matter who owns it and how it's governed, it would could become part of that intelligence network at some level or other. And I guess CFIUS decided that, uh, you know, they'd cut their losses in advance right. and prevent that from happening. Um, did, did it even but, go as far as CFIUS? Uh, well, it depends. Uh, sort of preemptive so there are three deals that Huawei was talking about making that uh, were cut off at the pass. Mm-hmm. And who knows? I don't know. We don't know in Canada uh, right. exactly what the... Uh, okay, well, back to your book. I want to talk... You, know, you invoke a, a, a concept that I, I hadn't actually read about before. You talk about the concept of the software of growth on how 
uh, China needs to move beyond the sort of mobilization stage to a more mature stage of development as a way of avoiding that middle-income trap that we were talking about and the stagnation that it threatens. Um, can you talk about what this software of growth entails and uh, how China is doing implementing that, uh, what the biggest impediments are to it and any progress that you, you think you, you Have know. you got all night? <laughs> so, in a nutshell, a term that was coined by a Nobel laureate, Douglas North, mm -hmm. who wrote some of the early, very illuminating studies of the sources of growth. So, the software is the set of institutions in a country, uh, starting with the market, starting with uh, the legal system, right and the recognition of property rights that create the foundation on which you build other uh, institutions and make possible the kinds of changes that China faces if it's going to rely more heavily as a driver of growth on productivity rather than mobilizing labor and capital. Right. And uh, so when you think about writ large, those institutions, it's moving in the direction of a more market-based economy, and we expect to see that. One out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Rule of law, I don't know. Rule of law, well, there's a lot of, as I said, there's a lot of training of judiciary uh, right. going on. Uh, but there is this dilemma for the party state about, so is it the rule of law or is it the rule by, by law? law? Right. Exactly. And that hasn't been sorted out yet. So that's another challenge because when you think about, again, avoiding the middle income trap, implementing the software so that you grow per capita income through time like South Korea has done, it's improving the education and the quality of the labor force. That will help productivity growth. But it's creating those property rights and the legal system that makes it possible for efficient more efficient allocation of capital. Mm -hmm. And it creates the basis for investment and innovation. And when you think about innovators, they tend to be rather disobedient, rather independent, and determined to do things that nobody's done before or to do things totally differently. And the dilemma is if the party state tells people what they can talk about and what they should think what impact does that have on, on the atmosphere yeah. and the incentives for innovation? Mm -hmm. And if property rights protection is weak, that further undermines the incentives for innovation. And so when you look at the 12th plan, the emphasis in innovation is on what I call buying innovation mm -hmm. by putting huge amounts of public money into certain industries and certain research that hopefully will it's, lead in. It's top-down rather than bottom-up. Absolutely. Right, right, right. I would, I would absolutely agree with that. Although, I, I mean, maybe you can uh, listen to a podcast that we recently did about the topic of innovation, briefly raise, you know, some questions I did then, which I wonder whether uh, it's the appropriate question to be asking or whether China is indeed at a stage in that tailwind that's been driving China of just uh, taking people out of agriculture and putting them into manufacturing that may be running out, but th this country is still 50% agrarian, mm -hmm. or at least 49% agrarian. And uh, I wonder whether the expectation that a country at this stage of development ought to be a major uh, disruptive innovator is misplaced. Um, I mean, would capital naturally flow toward sort of the riskier fruit in the higher-up branches when there's so much low-hanging fruit, when there's so much strewn around, where... In investment in a very low tech sector will tend to pay off better 
any case, that's, that's well. I guess I'd say, look, we're talking about a very long game sure. here, and you start at some point and no moving in that direction. innovation will become extremely important. It's already important in the studies that have been done of economies that fall into the income, middle income trap. One of the distinguishing factors is their ability to move up market into higher value-added activities right. and out of competition with the, the labor-intensive production. Right. And they have to start competing with the big guys. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, that is going to be the imperative uh, in China. And, you know, as long as there's an undervalued exchange rate, it's moving in the right direction. Again, it's part of a long game. That exchange rate has to be flexible eventually. And sometimes people say it'll be in the next five or even less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. I guess um, I want to just ask one more question. Professor Dobson, you devote part of uh, your outside game chapter to talking about popular perceptions, to people-to-people relations. Um, why do you think that this has become more important, and, and how do you think that we can redress what appears, at least from, from where I sit, to be a, a kind of precipitous decline in people-to-people relations between Americans and Chinese, in, in perceptions, in mutual perceptions? Well, I think probably a factor in the decline is the reports of pollution. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. tourism and, and visits, uh, even I thought twice about spending three weeks in China at this time of year, and I've, I'm glad I came. The sunshine has been wonderful. We have Jeremy to thank for that. But So I'm not sure there's been a precipitous decline, but there is mutual suspicion Mm -hmm. uh, on both sides. I think the pivot and the mistakes made there contributed to a rise in nationalism and uh, concern about China's traditional role uh, in the Pacific and traditional um, recognition and superiority. Uh, in in the Asia-Pacific region. And if I throw in Canada, you know, the thing that bothers me is this, there is a rise in suspicion in Western Canada because of investments in in natural resources and, you know, a total ignorance about how the environment in China is changing for the state-owned enterprises, which there's all this suspicion about. And so... I don't think you can have enough tourists moving back and forth. Educational exchanges, such as what I've been doing over the last uh, week here, but on a much larger scale, where students are studying, uh, students are learning Mandarin. Most of the students of the people I know, I mean, most of the kids of the people I know, uh, middle-class Canadians, still send their kids on tours to Europe. You know, go wrong way. <laughs> go study a falling star. You know, <laughs> and the other thing I guess is that if you have politicians who follow rather than inform public opinion, and in in the kinds of fractured coalition kinds of de- democracies that we have these days, public opinion can have quite an impact on long term strategy, absolutely, and policy making, and so it's essential in this long game that uh, we're involved with, all of us on the planet, with a rising China, uh, to invest in those exchanges that are not just informational, but where we help each other. 
Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join us for uh, what's been a, a lovely conversation. My Crossroads. great pleasure to be here. You're welcome back next time you come through town. I want to uh, also point out that you are also the author of uh, another book about China and India. Um, it's uh, called Gravity Shift. Gravity Shift, and it's about the rise of these two. It's about how they're going to change uh, the world uh, okay. up to 2030. I guess India's fallen a little bit by the wayside, but China is certainly steaming ahead. Uh, I'm going to take the liberty of making that your recommendation. All That's comes my out of recommendation. My mouth, uh, this uh, gravity shift, check that out. Um, I look forward to reading it, I know. Uh, Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? It's, it's a very tiny little thing, I'm afraid, but it's, it's somebody who I hope to have a guest, uh, as a guest uh, on the podcast soon. Beijing Birding is a Twitter feed by uh, an amateur uh, ornithologist who may as well be professional called Terry Townsend, who's uh, a real expert on the bird life of Beijing. Wow, excellent. So, I mean, yeah, and there is I'll, quite I'll, a lot of it. You might be amazed to learn. <laughs> well, I mean, I've become a big fan of the azure-winged magpie since making it. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's it's the 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 mascot of our show, actually. <laughs> is it? Yeah, it is. Okay, great. Yeah, so yeah, Terry Townsend. I hope we do manage to get him on the show. That would be really terrific. I'm going to make a, a sort of strange recommendation, and uh, apologies to listeners who aren't in China, but. Um, I grew up in Arizona. I spent you know, ages 12 to 18, and I think probably half of my meals were Mexican. And, I, and the Mexican food in southern Arizona is just amazing. And it's one of the things that I, I, I'd long craved here in, in China. At and there's last, never been a good Mexican no, restaurant been, in there, Beijing. There have been there? good ones. There have been good there ones. There have been, but not long-lasting ones. Right, right. They, that was, that's the problem. And it, it's with that, the brevity of their life, that I make this recommendation. And I make it not without a little bit of hesitation because... I don't, I mean, it's kind of my spot, but it's called El Gran Bocado. It's right across from the April Gourmet, just west of San Uh It's it's really good. Um, I, I highly recommend it. You know, get the enchiladas. Uh, they do good green and red enchilada sauce. Uh, very good. Uh, okay, go stop. Pollo. Yeah, it's really I'm good, good food. Yeah. Yeah, Sounds know, like Hunan. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. definitely check it out. Uh, right. and, and, uh, take it from me as somebody who, who's a, a Mexican food aficionado. Uh, you know, it's not the authentic stuff, um, you know, uh, from, say, Mexico City, but it's it's border food. It's Sonoran, basically. Check it out. Uh, I don't want them to go out of business, so do patronize them. <laughs> Anyway, thank you, Professor Dobson. It was really great to have Wendy Thanks Dobson. Thanks so much on. for inviting me. Yeah. And Jeremy, great to see you again, man. Uh, Likewise. And uh, we will see you folks next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.